0: listening to the Jelly Donut Podcast. I'm Ryan, your host. Join me as I talk to the best and brightest in finance and economics. We'll go beyond just theory and discuss some of the most important real-world macro questions of our time. What happens next and how does all of this end? Pull up a seat and listen in. We'll talk about it coming up next. This show is brought to you by Kova Coffee. Kova is a specialty roaster out of Portland, Oregon, and they specialize in single origin coffees. They're committed to long term sustainable partnerships with coffee producers. Now, if you're like me, I love coffee. I like to start off with usually one or two cups. I make it by hand at home with a pour over, but it doesn't matter how you make it. You could be using a Mr. Coffee machine. It doesn't matter, but what does matter is the beans. You have to start with really high-quality beans, and you'll always make sure you have a great cup. So just say no to those burnt, over-roasted corporate coffee beans that you find at a grocery store and upgrade your coffee game. I'm going to make it real easy for you. Here's what you do. Just go to covacoffee.com, that's C-O-A-V-A, coffee.com, and use our code, JDP10, that's JDP10 and you get $5 off your first purchase, do it right now while you're thinking about it. You'll be happy you did. Today in the show, we have Dave Collum. Dave is a professor of organic chemistry at Cornell University. His popular year review is widely anticipated among market participants, and his work has been featured in Zero Hedge and Peak Prosperity. He's also appeared on Real Vision and many podcasts, including Tales from the Crypt and QTR. He holds a BS in biology from Cornell and a PhD in chemistry from Columbia. Enjoy my conversation with Dave Collin. Dave, welcome to the podcast.
1: Hey, honored to be on it. Thanks for inviting me.
0: Well, the first thing I like to talk about with guests is going back to 2008, global financial crisis. Up until that point, we saw long-term capital management bailout. We saw the Asian crisis, 98, Russian crisis. We've seen a lot of things along the way, SNL crisis, uh, but nothing was quite light like 2008. So take us back to that time, what you were doing, what was going through your mind.
1: Well, in 0809, I was thinking it's about time. <laughs> I, it, I've been waiting for a long time. My first writing is was not technically a public essay of any kind but in on may sixth of 2002 i happened to stumble across this when i was cleaning up my emails i'd written a, an email to a friend of goldman a guy named rick sherland who some of you listeners will know he's a very famous guy and others won't know who he is but he, he founded goldman software group and so he took microsoft public and all these big tech companies we all take for granted and in my email the, the, the email trail, you can see where I, I'd been bearish and and he said, what's got you jumpier than normal? And I, I wrote about a five page email describing the subprime crisis that was brewing. and This was an O2. And I, I wasn't analyzing it, right? I was just parroting stuff that I had read. And, and the smart guys all the way back to the late 90s were saying that the real estate market is starting to get a little, little nutty. And by 2002, you could see that uh, organizations like... GE Capital and stuff like that. We're we're doing some very risky trades, and and they were they were going deeply into the subprime. And they they supposedly unwound their risk, but then they they, re, they 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 realigned risk in there using the derivatives market. And so I laid it all out in 02. Um The one thing I missed very badly was I thought J P Morgan was going to be ground zero, and that was pretty much that was pretty much the only bank standing. Um, don't know how they protected their derivatives books so well because it was huge. Um, by 05, 06, I think it gets very vague. Right. But um, there was one there, there was a very small cadre of characters who were watching the subprime crisis. And there were there were two sources that I remember prominently. One was a woman who posted on, I don't know, something like Seeking Alpha, maybe. Uh, under the, the the pseudonym Tanta, and she was somehow in the middle of the uh, fixed income world, and she was posting stories about how crazy things were getting, and they were very authentic sounding, and and so Tanta became this cult figure amongst those of us who worried, and she was talking about the chaos underneath the surface and how 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 it was just going to blow up, and then the. The thing that everyone was watching, everyone meaning, I don't know, half a dozen people, best I can tell, but uh, actually as many more than that by 06. By 99, there was no one who was paying attention. But but by 06, um, there's a thing called the market ABX index, which is this very arcane index having to do with the pricing of derivatives and it tooled along at par for the longest time and then it started tanking now i gotta confess i didn't really understand the market abx index i just knew that the smart people were saying that thing going down is a very bad sign so i as, as we talked about a little bit before the 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 um we started here um i was standing up in front of my class in 07 and I, I can't help but tell stories in class, I, I just every class. I this this semester's theme is climate change. So uh, in any event, I turned to the class without warning and said, I think the banking system is about to break. That was March of 07. And they looked at me and I, I this is the most amazing part of all. I said, I could imagine a scenario where you can't get money out of your ATMs. And I don't even know where I got that idea from. Right. Because people were saying that and that came pretty close to true. Um, by by later that year one time i sat down with a friend of mine who wanted me to chat with his money manager and she was just you know sort of kool-aid swelling money manager and and i i i had a long hour and a half talk with her probably and i said look here's the deal you got a client who wants to get to safety and if you take him to safety and and he's wrong and i'm wrong and you're right uh he won't blame you right he's taking it on just but help him get to safety and if he's wrong, then you can help him get reinvested again when it, when it turns out to be a dud. And she said to me, when's this gonna happen? I said, well, I, I think it started, but um, but but within a year, I'll, I think I'll be either right or wrong. And that turned out to be correct. Um, so we were starting to seriously buckle. Uh, by 09, I had the funniest goddamn experience of them all. I, I taught an advanced honors thesis course and it turns out it was the same kids I had declared the banking system would break I had them as sophomores that year I had them when I was seniors on the first day of class I remember that statement and the, 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 this was now February 09 right so all hell was breaking loose <clears throat> and I asked them I said is it, it didn't I tell you it was the banking system was going to break and they said yeah and, and I said you know did your econ professors tell you that and they said no and I said, what are those assholes paid for, right? And so uh, so in any event, um, my very first guest lecture, which is normally you're lecturing about how to write a proposal, and how to write a you know, paper, and how you raise money, and what are you doing in grad school, and stuff like that. Um, my first guest lecture was the CEO of Morgan Stanley Bank. And he gave a two-hour lecture on what was happening inside the financial system and February of 2009. He personally cut his teeth on mortgage-backed securities. When he was a young punk, he left Mortgage Stanley Bank, which is the banking subsidiary. It's not Morgan Stanley itself. He left in 06, I believe, because he saw that it was just going to become a disaster. So he said, I'm out, I'm out. Um, He said he was two million fold leveraged. Two million fold. Now, the one thing you've also
0: mentioned in the past is You can't find one single article out there where anybody predicted the amount of QE and stimulus that had been pumped into the system, and now it's increasing even more. I find that to be an interesting fact point. What's your view on that?
1: Well... And part of it takes you back to the middle of the thing, uh, the middle of the chaos. But um, I not only can't find anyone who's written anything about it, but you know, due to the miracles of social media, I can get to countless hedge funds. I've done countless podcasts. I've done, you know, I, I have direct connections with people who are globally famous, which is so amazing to me actually. Um, and I've always asked them, do, do you know anyone who, who themselves knows anyone who predicted you know, tens of trillions of dollars of intervention and no one, right? There were thousands of people who saw the crisis coming, thousands, right? There were a couple of guys who played it really smart. And, and by the way, you know, so someone like Kyle Bass, who I occasionally get to chat with, and there's a couple of guys who played it brilliantly. But here's the harsh reality. If they had, and, and I would have predicted this, by the way, I thought this was what was going to happen to them. Uh, if the Fed hadn't come in with their trillions and trillions and central banks all over the world, uh, the guys who played it brilliantly would have lost big because their counterparties would have been bankrupt. So they never would have gotten paid. Mm -hmm. So basically, in my opinion, uh, Ben Bernanke bailed out Kyle Bass. That's nothing against Kyle Bass, but counterparty risk was huge. And so in any event, No, there was no one who saw. So so when they bailed out uh, Bear Stearns, for example, or the system by by basically taking control of Bear Stearns, and they gave J.P. Morgan 30 billion dollars to take over Bear Stearns. That was a mind boggling sum of money. That was a real headliner when we were told that Jamie Dimon got bribed 30 billion to take over Bear Stearns. (laughs) 30 billion is, is, is a comically tiny amount of money compared to what's 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 gone on since then.
0: Right. And when you look at, obviously, the name of the show here, Jelly Donut Podcast, after uh, David Einhorn's 2012 article, talking about how ZERP and NERP, uh, zero interest rate policies and these negative policies are actually could be harming the economy more in the longer run. And going back to around this time, 2011-12 was finally we, we had reached this point to where the market had more than recovered. I think it had already rebounded there in in 2009, going into 2010. So a lot of people were looking at this like, okay, finally, maybe it's time to shrink the balance sheet and try to normalize interest rates. And then we seem to basically kind of double down from there. Um, And it's arguable, maybe we had a recession in 2016, but it wasn't measured as one. That's when oil prices uh, broke. And now it was going to be like watching paint dry. Everything was going to roll off, uh, according to Yellen. And now we're in this situation where the balance sheet is, is back to all time highs. What, what was going through your mind back in 2011, 12 when, you know, it looked like they had saved the system and maybe we could return to normal, but we just kind of did a complete U-turn and kept the stimulus coming.
1: It struck me as reckless. Uh, I spent a number of days with the guy running the, uh, the bond buying program. That's Andy Hussar who worked for Morgan Stanley. And and he was, he's the guy who bought the first $700 billion worth of bonds using TARP. Uh, and, and by the end, he was so jaded that he left wall street and he, he described it. Um, he described it to me as, as that at first, they were trying to find the right stuff to buy. And he just kept getting told, "Look, eight billion a day, just buy eight billion a day." And he realized that it was a completely and utterly unguided demand for eight billion a day. Now, I don't think many people understand the role of the Fed balance sheet. I probably don't either, but I think I have a better understanding of how profoundly ignorant we all are. And but 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 you know, in theory, there's nothing about the Fed balance sheet. That influences the economy, right? In theory, the existence you can the Fed could put all sorts of crap on their balance sheet. But what what it does risk is that when you when the Fed takes four trillion and buys treasuries, um, what they've done is they've taken four four trillion dollars worth of U.S. treasuries off balance sheets of all the financial institutions, and in return, given them um, equally safe. Uh, cash essentially, right? But but there's a big difference. One is treasuries are not legally reserve assets, whereas cash is. And so um, and so now the banks have four trillion dollars that they didn't have that they can use as reserve assets against leverage. And through the miracles of leverage of the banking system, you can lever up four trillion through the monetary policies and the rules about how much how much you can lever against an asset to a very large quantity of money. And so, so what the Fed essentially did was was provided a lot more uh, collateral that was usable to lever up. Now, I'm not sure that that. Necessarily gets them to lever up, but they they seem to be right. So we talked about Bill Miller making one hundred twenty percent. Bill Miller did it with leverage. he got that money from somebody, right? Mm-hmm. So,
0: and this is where the financialization piece comes in with stock buybacks and companies like WeWork and Tesla, who are, who are in Netflix, who are getting still a f- funding from capital markets when you know there's no profits. So how do you see this money sloshing around as what could be a catalyst for this
1: money drying up? Oh, I don't think you know, right? That, that's sort of why, What's what caused the San Andreas Fault to slip on a given day, right? I don't think you know. Um, David of the St. Louis Fed, asked the other day rhetorically, what would trigger a recession? Mm-hmm. And I think what Endolfato he, I, he was either trying to uh, trivialize recessions in some way. I, I don't trust him not to be doing that or he doesn't understand the right question. And that is that that it, it doesn't matter what triggers a recession. What matters is what causes a recession. Right. And so so, you know, let's use an analogy. The fires in Australia, right? What triggered him was an arson, mm-hmm. but what caused them was bad, bad land management. Over the last few decades, and some very wet summers that caused fuel to build up. So, when what Andolfato should have asked is, "What causes the recession?" Then, you, then the answers are quite straightforward. And it's things like you know vast corporate excesses in debt. So they borrowed tons of money to buy back stocks. Some of that's a mirage because some of it they borrowed money to buy back stocks because their money was trapped overseas, and so they were they were leveraging against cash. It was just on the wrong part of the. The financial system and so they once they got to repatriate it with trump's tax policies uh which i didn't like um then then they could in principle liquidate their debt i don't think they did mm-hmm. i don't i don't think they delivered with that tax repatriation i think they bought shares with it mostly um and so the share buybacks it's funny um i i think there's a lot of criminality there i think in theory share buybacks don't have to be criminal but when when the motivation is to pump the shares. Um, I did a detailed analysis this year, and you can show that if, if you liquidate your balance sheet to buy back shares, the only way that's a win is if your company is a more profitable enterprise than if, the, 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 than if the, the, what you liquidated um, is. And so, for example, in periods in history where your balance sheet would have treasuries kicking out 15%, you're better off keeping your balance sheet fat as a a pig, because you'll just make money with those treasuries sitting there at 15%. Or if your balance sheet includes owning shares in fast growing startup companies that are doing great, you don't wanna liquidate those and buy Procter & Gamble shares, right? That that might be a bad idea. But they were liquidating money that was returning nothing to buy back shares, which by the way, I still think was a bad idea. But what essentially represents is a reach for yield. So if your balance sheet gets no return, right? Thank you, Jay Powell, right? If your balance sheet gets no return, then you're gonna try to find a better use of that money. And so they thought, well, we'll buy shares. Meanwhile, they all get their stock options, get rich. But if you chase shares up in price, you're buying froth. And so the the actual assets backing each share, once if a company chases the price up, that each shareholder has actually less backing to their shares so that the price might be going up but the actual material value of the share is actually going down and that's something people don't do the math on and it's, it's simple math easy it's very easy math
0: right and you've talked in the past about in during this next cycle whenever it turns finally getting back into equities you want to own companies that are are basically going to pay you to hold them. right? So these are the dividend payers, the companies actually making cash flows. Let's talk a little about the importance of that and why people seem to have forgotten that. And I guess you could see why when the, it's the old quote of, well, Chuck Prince, you might as well keep dancing while the music's playing and everything. But we're really getting into kind of a, a really crazy period, depending on how you measure
1: Well, so the the origin of that is that first and foremost, I got to confess. Um, so I did really well from 1980 to 2010, right? Those, those decades were fantastic for me. I I outdid most of the money managers and stuff like that, including, uh, I compounded at 13% from January 1st of 2000 to December 31st of 2009. No one did that. Right. Almost no one. Um, but I've been on the sidelines ever since because I've been a disbeliever and I fought the fed. And, uh, so, um, what I cannot believe I, it's like, you know, my lying eyes or I'm someone must've slipped me acid or something. Um, what I cannot believe is not only did the fed create yet another monstrous bubble and those who say it's not a bubble. I I've, last year I wrote, I showed 20 metrics that show it's two X overvalued. And then there's stupid things like, for example, if you look up the P.E. ratio on the triple Q or on the Russell 2000 it shows it's in the mid 20s and you go, well, you know, for fast growing companies, that seems OK. Well, it turns out it's not in the mid 20s. That turns out to be a public lie that's known. Every, it's not well hidden. Uh, the P.E.s are 85 to 90 for those two. And the way they calculate the average P.E. is such a such a whopping chunk of fraud. And a guy named Steve Breglia of Horizon Kinetics lays it all out how they do it. And, and John Crudell of the New York Post did, too. And so so when you're buying a company that's priced to return one percent, that's a bubble. Um, and so now we're in another bubble that I, I just I'm sitting there just breathless that they did it again. I mean, how stupid are we? Right. I just don't get it. So I think the next downturn is going to reveal all the damage. Right. it's going to reveal all the corporate debt which is monstrous it's record levels of corporate debt they're going to reveal that the money was terribly spent um and and then m- my model is that we're either going to have a very very mean recession or i'm wrong and what's what makes a recession mean well besides the fact that regression of the mean historic mean is a is a 50 percent cut right And that'll destroy CalPERS, and that'll destroy hedge funds, except the smart ones. That'll destroy all the endowments. 50% is a monster. And that assumption is that we regress to the mean of historical valuations and that a 50% regression doesn't cause damage. Now, if the economy gets damaged by it, which, excuse me, but if you're you're falling 50%, if you're free-falling 50%, you're going to projectile vomit too. That's going to hurt. Um, you're not going to feel very good. So the bottom line is is that the Hussman model says we could go to 65 70%, right? The Great Depression was 90%. So if we do that, society, the reason that's going to be a mean recession is twofold. One is, of course, it destroys everybody. And the second is we're going to have social movements that we have not seen in this country since the Civil War.
0: Yeah. And in the adage out there is was told to us basically that this is the 100 year storm and this is such an anomaly it'll never happen again and i know everyone talks about yellen's quote about you won't see another crisis within her lifetime and then i guess she she kind of changed the wording on that as as maybe or hopefully not later on um but you know you brought up a good comment about zero hedge and And when you look at some of these predictions is really the day in court hasn't arrived yet. And um, we have to kind of reserve judgment and wait and wait for this cycle to turn and and see what happens at that point um, because it's still too early, which I think is, is the number one thing that, you know, people should really think about.
1: Yeah. And if the bears are, are correct and that they've, and again every other bubble i can name there was a credible story right beanie babies aside right the beanie baby story was stupid The tulip bulbs were stupid, but, you know, the railroad bubbles of the late 19th century, they they, they were highly credible stories. The, The 1920s was a huge, huge credit bubble. Bernanke thinks it was the Great Depression was caused by mistakes in the 30s. He's full of crap. It was caused by the bubble created in the 20s. And, but it was believable. We had invented electricity and cars and all sorts of planes. And so how could you not think we were in a new era? Right. That, that's totally makes sense. Then the bubble of uh, we had kind of a tech bubble in the 60s. We thought we were king of the world. and Guns and butter put us down on that one. Um, the tech bubble of the late 90s. Boy, for a while, at least I bought it until I started doing math and saying, wait a minute. I thought about buying eBay and I said, eBay can grow their profits 20% a year for 15 years and they will they will at that point be at a reasonable valuation. I said, that seems kind of stupid, right? So I started questioning the eyeball counts and stuff and by mid 99, I was out of the market. But this bubble is the entire bubble. And the, the real estate bubble, you know, they're not making it anymore. I get why people buy into that. Everyone's getting a house that seemed really good. Again, smart people saw it coming. I saw it coming, people saw it coming. But but this stupid thing is the Fed won't let it drop. And that's just moron, that's moronic. I I just, oh my God, they're mid-level bureaucrats at best. And it's faith that that they will refuse to step aside. And I think they will not refuse to, at some point I think they'll say, okay, just step back, get out of the splash zone. We'll pick up the pieces (laughs) later, right? Yeah, you had a good
0: quote. You had a lot of great quotes in your year end review. And um, one really good one was pretty recent from Howard Marks talking about is it really the Fed's job to sustain these expansions and keep market dislocations at bay? Um, and it seems obvious that it shouldn't be their job. But when did you do you think this mandate or kind of hidden mandate started? Was it really under
1: Greenspan or more after? with Bernanke or Yellen? Uh, it was Greenspan. Mm-hmm. Uh, the difference in Greenspan and his, his successors was he had a huge cushion under him. So Greenspan rode a better part of, a, of the bond market bull, right? So Greenspan took over and we had just come up massive interest rates. And w- when interest, you know, typical, apparently a typical, you know, sort of credit cycle can last many decades. You know, listen to some guy, like Jim Grant, he'll tell you that, that, this is not a ridiculously long credit cycle that we're in. And so Greenspan went from this unbelievable period of, of very high interest rates. He got to ride most of the way down and, and, and dropping interest rates. So so Buffett wrote an article in 99, which gets misquoted all the time, including by the Fed, which is what tells me they're stupid. Um, he wrote an article that basically said, if you want to understand bull markets versus bear markets, it's very simple. He he points out that from uh, from 67 to 81, where the market treaded water nominally, but lost 80 percent against inflation. That's a horrific, horrific period. Um, He said that the GDP grew faster than it did from 81 to 99 right? And so this horrible bear market equities versus phenomenal bull market equities, the GDP was totally, totally, it was better in the former. So the question is what happens? And in this Forbes, I think it's Forbes, Fortune maybe, Fortune article, I think. He said, said, we went from 16% long-term rates to 4% during the bull market. And during the bear market from 67 to 80, 81, we went from 4% to 16%. He said, that's the whole thing. That's a factor of, of 16 different in long-term interest rates. He said, dropping rates is bullish. Now, the market took that and ran with it and went to it a level that was just dead wrong. And they say low rates are bullish. And that's not what Buffett said. Buffett said dropping rates are bullish. Now, I also don't know what Buffett's opinion is when dropping rates are from 3% to 1%, right? I doubt he thinks that's bullish. And someone like Lacey Hunt would say, no, that's bearish because it means your economy's stuck. And the economy's not doing as great as people say, It's it, despite all the stimulus. So, So the gist is with interest rates at millennial lows, we are in the world's biggest credit bubble in history, supposedly. Written history back to Romans, that big. Um, and, and the argument that the Fed makes as well, when interest rates are, are, are low, equity valuation should be high. And they ignore a couple things. One is they ignore the fact that they force the rates down. And they ignore the fact that what they're really saying is, look, if we blow the biggest bond bubble in the history of written civilization, then equity should also be in the biggest bubble in history. And I don't buy that model. That's the Fed model. The Fed model is a bubble in the bond market means you should have a bubble in the equity market.
0: Yeah. And when you look at valuations, as you mentioned, this 30 plus year bond market, 35 year bond bull market kind of coming to an end, I guess we still <laughs> could drop another one and a half, uh, points on the, on the 10 year or go negative. But, um, you know, we had rates at was it 17, 18% and, uh, 1981, 82 falling all the way down. And then when you look at where equities are priced especially U.S equities and then you when you look at fixed income they're really both at at these historic peaks so that begs the question is do you sit in cash do you you know are you in gold or like you know, and, and how long do you think uh, we'll have to wait for this cycle to turn uh, considering they just keep pumping in more liquidity when anytime there's a hiccup
1: let me finish the thought about buying equities that pay you to own them i think that the next time we the equity market turns down i don't think it'll i don't think it'll hit the i don't think it'll bounce up like a golf ball hitting the cart path this time i think that, i think it's going to be a generational change in attitude what that means is is that the we works and stuff will not emerge from that ooze and i think what you have to do is you're going to have to buy stuff that says look whether it doesn't go up or whether it goes up, doesn't matter. This company is making stuff. They're selling stuff. They're making money and therefore owning it is profitable. And I think, you know, if I I had uh, an acquaintance do the numbers on the, the Nikkei and I asked him, he, I, I, I actually called it out in a podcast. and He did it for me. I didn't know who the guy was, but he, I said, what happens if you started buying the Nikkei at its peak? You didn't own it, right? You're a 22-year-old Japanese guy. If you're 55 and you're all in on the Nikkei in 89, you died broke, right? It's just that simple. You went to your grave broke. You're still broke. And, um, but if you're a 22-year-old and you start buying the Nikkei in 1989, so you say, okay, well, obviously, the first $1,000 a month, we'll say, is not going to pay you very well. But what if you average all the way through the mess? How long does it take? before all of your investments integrated over all those monthly contributions, what point do you break even? Where you've bought all the way down and then you've bought all the way back up. And how many years did it take? And it took 20 years to break even. So that's what averaging does when you have a long protracted slog. And if we have one of those, you better get dividends.
0: Yeah. And now, what do you think about the pushback from someone who might say, "Okay, this all makes sense, but let's say we have a quote-unquote market dislocation. We have something that comes up where the Fed basically pumps in more liquidity, and maybe they they start talking. They've already started talking about the uh, the large scale asset purchases. Right now, I know it's only on the uh, the short end of the curve. These thirty day bills." But let's say they they double the balance sheet or, or triple the size, um, you know. Is is there is this something to where the when the liquidity gets pumped in, it's it will just raise prices, whether it's through some facilitation of of, of more liquidity or maybe just the belief system that okay, the Fed is coming in and we have this this Fed put. Could that could that maybe extend the cycle, or or will you know? Could we finally get to that point to where, as you mentioned, people won't trust that the Fed <laughs> pushing in more liquidity can prop up prices anymore?
1: Well, I you know I don't know I don't know if we've reached the point where the next time they have to pump it they can't, or whether they've got one last gasp of a pump and dump scheme in them. I don't know. Here's what I think. Will happen. There will be very dexterous people who can trade whatever they do, right? This is not Joe Sixpack. It's not me. I can't buy a thirty-year Treasury thinking I'm going to sell it a month from now or six months from now. I don't have it in me. I don't have the skill, and so we are stuck with buying normal, normal things. Joe Sixpack can't can't go out on the the hang ten off the end of the surfboard. Guys like David Tepper will probably win no matter what they do because he's just that. Kapper's is the best of, of basically you know, going with the system, maybe Druckenmiller, but he's old. Um, I, I think in the process of doing that, the Fed is destroying capitalism. That's what I think they're doing. So short term, they might be able to do it. But I, I think they're destroying capitalism. They're c- completely undermining the price discovery mechanism. Uh, they're destroying the middle class. And and I I know it's very draconian, right? It's like, oh, Dave, come on, it can't be that bad. Well, it's been a slow, methodical march to this state of decay. But, you know, if you talk to some smart guy like Lacey Hunt, I've mentioned him twice now. uh, You know, super low rates, negative rates, they're deflationary, right? You're you're getting nothing for your capital. How is that inflationary? How how is that going to pump anything? You're getting nothing and so, pension funds will be destroyed. Um, and if they have to go out on the risk curve, so once you buy an, a, an equity market, the triple Q up at 90, you're buying something that is priced to return 1%. And if they can get you to buy it up to the point where it's priced to return a half a percent, that's like a pilot who's got, you know, a plane with three out of four engines knocked out and he's at 35,000 feet thinking, oh, I should go to 40,000 feet. Right. That doesn't cure anything. So I think the Fed is totally, you know, the Bank of Japan don't totally destroy the Japanese bond market. There is no Japanese bond market left. There's nothing. Right now, what? I don't know. This is unprecedented. I feel like a a native and South American, the conquistadors have landed ashore. I don't understand what I'm looking at.
0: (laughs) Yeah, we've talked on the show about the JGB or Bank of Japan buying up most of the JGB's outstanding and what's kind of going to happen to the currency there once they maybe buy all of them up. And could that be a playbook for the Fed and other central banks buying, just buying more of their own debt and, and facilitating that basically debt creation through the QE?
1: Well, how does it work for Japan? (laughs)
0: <laughs> it hasn't been uh, going so well some people say the demographics are different so okay you can't compare apples to oranges but there are some similarities our as you demographics mentioned. stink too mm-hmm, exactly our
1: demographics the globe's demographics stink now now the demographics might improve if the coronavirus runs around for a while you know the the end of the, the dark ages we'll call it you know the, the the Black Plague ushered in the Renaissance, right? Without the Black Plague, you don't get the Renaissance. So maybe we just need to squeegee <laughs> the Earth free of all this excess labor. I don't know. It, it's not a pleasant transition,
0: right? Let's shift gears a little bit and talk about the societal impact. So you've talked in the past about you know maybe the pitchforks come out in this next cycle when. Joe Sixpack loses his job again and thinks about going back to 08, how all the banks got bailed out. And now you know, we can go down the road of talking about the, uh, some of the political things happening with uh, student loans and things like UBI and all of these things coming down the pike. But how do you think that the societal piece ties into this for this next downturn?
1: Well, it's already a problem. I saw a video this morning, actually, which was really a poignant one was uh, was Elizabeth Warren got accosted after one of her presentations by a guy who said, look, I just put two kids through college. I paid every penny. And now you're going to make me pay for someone else's kids going to college because they bought a big truck and stuff like that instead of saving. Said, how is that He says, am I going to get reimbursed? And she said, no. Mm hmm. And, and that's the problem. So I view the student debt problem as both a profound problem because you've taken a generation and it's like, it's like you amputated a leg off every member of that generation or something, right? They, they can hop around on one foot, but it's not going to be very helpful. You know, if they, it, it's supposedly well known, whatever that means. Some guy on the internet says it. Um, that if you hobble a generation in their early formative years of adulthood, um, they don't recover well. And what happens is if there is a recovery, guess where employers go, they go right to the kids coming out of college. They hire them. You're some 30 year old guy who's been do, been a barista. You think you're going to get hired to write code again? Right. Right. <laughs> so, so I, I, but I also think that we're heading for such an angry period in history. Right. I mean, I, and I'm getting sucked into it. So I, I'll watch something like, like Joe Rogan, who I adore, endorse Bernie Sanders. And now Bernie supporters are saying, you've got this white nationalist Nazi endorsing you. You should denounce him. And I'm going, what are you talking about? So I'm so, out so, there so. posting on Twitter saying that liberals are now total idiots, right? That's not the most open-minded view of the world either. Right. But I, I, I look at it and I just see this idiocy and and, and it, it, it's because everyone's gone so extreme that the, 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 the liberals used to be compassionate. They were known always to be slightly smarter, I think, than the conservatives. Mm -hmm. I think the conservatives were known to be maybe a little more realistic, a little more pragmatic. Mm -hmm. But now the liberals have lost their mind. They lost their mind to the day that Trump got elected. Mm -hmm. But that's again, that's a trigger, not a cause. But somehow underneath all this is we've got a population that is so mad And both the right and the left are mad. They're just mad at different things. What's going to happen when they actually have a reason to be mad? Right.
0: And you've talked about a lot of different topics on some of your other appearances, going deep down the Epstein case, looking at what happened in Vegas. And let's talk a little bit about a few things come to mind. First off, the price of gold and, and some of the manipulation there. The second thing is when you look right now with the leading candidates, we had, you know, Warren, you know, gaining steam and, and, and all of a sudden now the whole picture is flipped where Bernie's in the lead and, and Warren and, and, and Tulsi and all these other people are just kind of like by the wayside. And so how are you looking at this as far as, and you've talked about the global warming narratives and things like that and in some of the shootings, how they're just very rhythmic and you can't put your finger on it, but they just seem to come up, you know, in a very rhythmic kind of pattern. And now we're having the, uh, you know, the outbreak, um, right now. Do you think that there's there's something at play there where maybe we, we don't fully have all the information of what's going on behind the scenes in some of these cases?
1: Yeah, well, yeah, I do. It seems to be a popular topic for my podcasting buddies to take me to. Part of it is because I'm not afraid of being called a conspiracy theorist. And so they go, oh, we got to get this guy on because he'll 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 go wacko and we'll get some real great material out of him. But, um, yeah, there's stuff that there's stuff that's wrong. Everything that I think ends up being put in the category of a probability. Right. And so something can seem kind of wrong, seriously wrong. My God, I can't think of a way for that to be right. You know, there's varying layers. But I think uh, I think some of the things you mentioned uh, are troubling. The Epstein story, I think, is a profound one. I think it's the biggest scandal in U.S. history. And and what do you mean by big? Right. Well, basketball is it bigger than a golf club. It depends on how you measure. Right. Um, But I think it's the most broadly based. The fact that uh, the fact that Epstein was a pedophile and the fact that he had all these powerful friends and and the fact, you know, I, 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 I he didn't kill himself. I, I'm confident of that, but uh, I'm not sure he's dead. Um, but the key thing here is, is and none of that's relevant. We shouldn't even care about Epstein anymore. What's relevant is, is that he has all these profoundly powerful people and, and we're just laughing it off. So no one seems to doubt that Bill Clinton was flying with Epstein everywhere. And no one seems to doubt that Bill Clinton probably got a ton of sex out of the thing, right? We we all say, well, that's Bill, right? I don't know if people doubt whether some of these girls were underage, what we call rape. And somehow society is sitting there looking at the possibility that there are hundreds, if not thousands of powerful men raping teenagers that supposedly go down to 11 or 12 years old. Including Prince Andrew, and I'm not gonna name the lawyers because I don't wanna get sued. But but there's there's countless. I mean just huge numbers. And that none of them are being interrogated. Right? And what that shows the average joker is Sort of like a mini, a maxi version of Jesse Smollett, right? He he tried to start a race war, basically. And then a few phone calls got made, and I see, you know, he's walking, right? Would that be a huge deal? No. In fact, I was going to write about it, but then Epstein showed up. I go, that is a huge deal. And so, yeah, I think think there's probably a hundred, if not more, people who you could track down and throw in prison for the rest of their lives, and we're not going to. We haven't even found his his right hand person, Ghislaine Maxwell, who I pithily gave the nickname "Jiz" to, and, uh, and and she's clearly a criminal. If he was a criminal, she's a criminal. Where is she? There's room. There's rumors everywhere, but she's missing, and I don't see us trying to find her. Right.
0: And why do you think some of these stories tie into each other? Why do you think the Paradise Papers and the Panama Papers with a a couple of unnamed law firms, we won't mention the names, but why do you think those didn't get more attention and more outcry?
1: Well, yeah, I, I'll mention it. <laughs> <laughs> um, I don't care about mentioning a law firm, but there was a law firm down in Panama, right? And it got hacked and there were twenty five thousand accounts, all with the same address and, in, and a number of names did surface. It included the Clintons and included a bunch of uh, dictators and a bunch of all sorts of people. There's a huge number of names. And they were obviously, yeah. Hunt, well, there were thousands, thousands actually. Yeah. And and that story got put away within a week. And the reason is, is because the names and some people actually quit their positions or some big resignations because mm-hmm. they thought, holy crap, I'm doomed. They didn't realize that they just gone on vacation for a week. It would have been gone. Right. But the reason it went away is because the names on the list were the people who run the world. What would happen if there's a big scandal, which they found out that Putin had an account there, which I'm sure he did, actually. Is Russia going to prosecute Putin? No. Right. They might take him to a gulag, his his opponents. But so so we have an elite. And I hate to use that term because it sounds so trite. But we have an elite who is who is bulletproof. And they're all connected. So if you get one, you're going to get the other. So they all protect each other. There's no chance they're going to let this spin out of control. There's no chance they're going to let this spin out of control.
0: Yeah, and you brought up a great point on a previous um, podcast you were on, talking about the how the banks are are really kind of in control here. When you look at especially the U.S. presidential election, because they're the ones who can tighten up credit, they can uh, pull some strings, and and really control the spigot of the whole global economy. I think there's that's an interesting path to go down too, because and th- and that's not even saying democrat or republican i think it, they're just looking at banks <laughs>
1: right <laughs> so so the bank here's the bank story this is a simple story so the banks have all the money and they have the ability to produce all the money as a former head of the bank of england said in the 20s you could take all the money away from us we would just print more mm-hmm. and it's just that simple so the banks pull the world there's no mechanism to imagine that they don't they have all the money and now, now we're in a world where the banks are multinational. So you can pretend like Citigroup is a U.S. bank, but it's not. You can pretend like J.P. Morgan's U.S. bank, but it's not. They're no more U.S. than Deutsche Bank. They're no more U.S. than, than, than some Japanese bank. For all I know, they're no more U.S. than the Bank of China. And so the, de- the deal is, is that when, when the big banks that you're in charge of making sure never suffer, that's the, that's the role of all central banking is to make sure you know when Volcker saved us from high inflation he he has been deified for saving us from high inflation one should ask the question is it possible that his heart wasn't pure he was just saving the banking system which was going to get hurt by the high inflation right and i think it's a legitimate question now i think the guy's better than most but it was also an era where everyone might have been better than most um so you got these multinational banks, and you've got multinational central bankers. And so the question is, how could it possibly be the case that the Fed is acting in the interest of the United States? And and I don't, I can't get to it because they're acting in the interest of J.P. Morgan and Citigroup. And they are not in any, the only way the Fed will act in the interest of the United States is if the interest in states is aligned with the interest of the international banking system.
0: Right. And you, as a professor, get to help form opinions and educate young people. What's your view on looking at the younger generation of, of maybe younger millennials and Gen Z about critical thinking skills and being able to, to, to use second-level thinking and, and diving into some of these topics to understand some of the knock-on effects. And do you think that's are, – are you concerned about that, or is that something you think um, you know, will prevail? And it seems like something that's really needed right now.
1: Well, you got to remember I'm teaching physical science students for the most part. And so I have had interactions with students and there's, there's a change mm-hmm. right there there. I think there's a fragility in all the students that you didn't used to see, but you got to put it into context. When I was young in the sixties, you know, uh, our generation was doing drugs and growing our hair and, and wearing bell-bottom jeans and Woodstock was big. You got to figure that from the perspective of the adults, we looked pretty useless, right? <laughs> and so, so as a consequence, you know. And before that, they were greasers and you know, Bobby socks and you know the. So, so I think, I think the kids between age fifteen and twenty five look pretty awful to any seasoned adult, right? It's a period where the frontal cortex is still growing, so I, I, I'm not sure what to make of it. If I were over in the humanities, I think I'd see a sort of a wretched view of, of students, but that, that might've always been true also. And so I I don't know what to make of it. I had a room full of freshmen, 10 of them who were in the sciences. I was their advisor and I asked them a couple of questions and I thought their answers were pretty thoughtful. And so I got to figure a Cornell kid studying physics or math or chemistry or computer science probably does not fit the stereotype. Of the useless gen z gen- i millennials get pounded because millennials now like saying Kleenex right i can't there's a name for that but 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 any young kid who's a punk and worthless, we call him a millennial, and it's not fair. The millennials are you know forty years old now or something right they're, they're, it's, but but their name now is connotes stupid kid
0: <laughs> right tying into that you mentioned your son on twitter got hit with a fee from a large bank Yeah. Um, do you think during this next cycle obviously most people have kind of a hatred towards banks or or, uh, definitely a mistrust it's the fee structure it's just the way the whole system is set up do you think during this next downturn when it comes People will dive in more and, and really understand how the Fed is set up as this quasi public private institution that gets this fixed six, roughly 6% dividend and really dig into the inner workings. Or is this going to be something where maybe that won't happen, but there's still going to be a, a lot of outrage? Like, do you think we can ever cross that chasm to what to have the general public understand
1: no. the inner workings? No, no, no. I think uh, to, to, to argue that the that the public's all of a sudden going to get real smart and sort through the nuance of banking seems unlikely to me. Um, to think even that the politicians inside the Beltway could do that is probably naive thinking. And so I think the political backlash could be very real, but it's not going to be very thoughtful. Which is why which is why getting to the point where that's possible is such a dangerous state um there are certainly um bazillionaires who are getting nervous some of them look like they're doing ass covering speeches to say look when you go to lynch people don't lynch me i'm on your team right (laughs) um and i I some of its virtue signaling which is just as repugnant by any measure um you know you're a liar if you're virtue signaling you're a liar and the only reason that virtue signaling makes any sense is if you're trying to have sex with some person Um, and, uh, in fact, there's a name for it that has to do with anthropology that describes the the sneaky, um, fill in the blank syndrome. It's, it's where you pretend to believe something so that you'll get, get, get laid. Um, and, and so I, no, I don't think it's going to be nuanced at all. I think they're, I think they're just going to get mad. And I think the politicians are just going to figure out which way the wind's blowing and they're going to get mad or pretend to be mad. I think the big risk to the banking system is that they might go to, you know, back inside the Senate and whoever's, whoever's secretary of treasury can take a knee in front of, in front of whoever's running the Senate and say, I beg you, do it. And if that person is looking at them going, you know what'll happen? I'll get kicked out of office in six months. I'm not doing it. Right. That, that, when when you get to the point where the people in elected office can't even pretend that they will be okay if they bail the banks out yet again. So the mistake the banks made, the big mistakes, and, and you want to read about this. I read every crisis book out there. I got so tired of reading about credit default swaps. Um there's a new one out there called The Chicken Shit Club by Jesse Eisinger, and he talks about the, what was going on in the Department of Justice and in the regulatory agencies during the crisis. It's really fantastic. And what the picture he conveys is one of complete and utter hopelessness. And that is they can't they not only couldn't get good convictions without brutal, brutal luck and serious effort, but then the upper courts overturned them all. And so they just started going for fines. And so the bankers screw us. And then the punishment is to screw the shareholders. Right. Somehow that seems like a fair trade to them. And I I think the next one's just going to be ugly now. So the failure to have a PCOR commission, the failure to throw bankers in jail and some visible show trials by the Obama administration. And it was his administration. I, you know, I'd trade Obama for a lot of presidents, but but he his legacy, his biggest mistake by a country mile is going to be the no banker in jail policy. He should have backed, he should have backed some serious show trials because that's how the public says, okay, you know, we didn't get them all, but we feel better now. We hung some in Times Square, whatever we had to do, and let's get on with life. But instead, and here's what I think the bankers did. Remember when they got bailed out and they paid themselves these huge bonuses and you go, what were they thinking, right? Oh, yeah. I, You know what I think they were thinking? I think they were thinking that the system was gone and that they were going to pay themselves big bonuses because it would be the last bonus ever paid. Yeah. And then all of a sudden the system got back on its feet because they dumped so much money into it. So I, I have no problem with the idea, the non-Austrian view that you had to bail out the system. But then they should have let it take its medicine. Yeah. And maybe it could tap the brakes a little occasionally. But but the cue either way, all the way 10 years later, is just ridiculous.
0: Yeah. And when you look at some of these, people talk about the forces of debt, demographics, deflation, technology all weighing down and having these deflationary forces but many people have have talked about this a lot a lot of good interviews on real vision grant did one with macro voices just within the past week or two talking about okay we may we may have this deflationary kind of collapse but then that longer term view is going to be just inflation and a, a race to the bottom
1: to devalue every currency. What's your view there? Well, I was a big inflationist. I believe that central bankers, if they were determined, could create inflation. No, yeah. um, I, I, I'm not convinced of that at all now. And I used to think I was like uh miss Shedlock and uh, it's sort of the blogger level. And then guys like, again, third time now, Lacey Hunt, what a genius that guy is. Um, at a, at a higher level, no offense, Mitch. Lacey's so high in my book that everyone's below him. Um They were the deflationists and I didn't buy it. I thought they could inflate their way out when Bernanke said we could do it. You know, we could print money. And I'm going, yes, they can. And that'll cause inflation. Um, I, I'm I'm not now a believer that that's a foregone conclusion. So Grant, I, I have no problem with the idea of Grant thinking thinking that's what's going to happen. If Grant said we know that's what's going to happen, that's where I'd go toe-to-toe with him. But I, he he wouldn't say that. I, I don't think he'd say with confidence. I think it's just his best model. He and Raul Paul have totally different views. Grant thinks the dollar's going to get torched, and Raul thinks the dollar's going to soar, right? Yeah. Dave, Dave thinks he's not smart enough to join in on that conversation.
0: <laughs> right. When you look at rates though where they are and then when you look at equity valuations it seems like something is is going to have to break um we have this picture where you know supposedly the, the funny thing about it is that supposedly we keep hearing how great the economy is and you alluded to this earlier but when you look at rates where they are um it just doesn't the picture just doesn't compute
1: well, you can also just look at the GDP, which, by the way, is an inflated number because the measure of GDP has to use government inflation statistics, and because the inflation statistics are flawed, then then the GDP is the most possibly optimistic view of what's happening. And the GDP over the last ten years has grown something. Well, you know, it it it, it for for a big part of that, it tracked the Great Depression. Right, and, and and I actually think, this is, may sound bizarre, I actually think we were in a recession in 2015-16, mm-hmm. a mild one. And I think they were able to keep it from going dark. I think they were able to actually keep it from actually showing up. But there, there, are, there are industrial metrics that show that every time, every other time they've turned down as much as they did, we're in a recession. So in that sense, the Fed won. I think their goal, I think, I think the Fed's goal is to somehow deflate this whole mess and somehow bridge asset prices right across that the valley of death to get to the other side. And so I think they want to correct the imbalances without correcting the, the asset prices. I think they're idiots. I think they're delusional. But I could be wrong. I'm well aware that my opinion doesn't carry a lot of weight. Um, and so, uh, so I think we'll have a colossal disaster at some point.
0: You mentioned the way they calculate inflation. Um, you tweeted out a really interesting alternative index of, of measuring inflation and cost of goods. Do you think at this point it's just is there any credibility left on the way they measure inflation, or it just seems like they keep moving the goalposts and they're measuring to a specific target of what they created? So it just it doesn't make a lot of sense.
1: Well, the Fed uses the most optimistic inflation measure of them all. So if you look at all the different ways you can measure inflation, the Fed, of course, uses the lowest And then those boneheads say inflation's too low, right? A central banker should be thrown out of their job saying inflation's too low, unless it's negative 10%. Then you can say, well, maybe we got a problem now, right? I'm okay with that. But but they say inflation's too low and I'm going, the, the Fed has lost institutional fear of inflation and they've lost institutional awareness of price discovery. And so they don't think that the market should be left to discover price. They think that, they, that a committee of 12 idiots should set the price. And think about that. That's just the stupidest garbage of an idea. I, could, I, could, I can't believe people who, who have bachelor's degrees in economics would say that, right? And so, so the Fed looked like a gaggle of idiots to me. They somehow think this is gonna work out well. I don't think it's going to. I will be proven wrong. One thing's for sure is it will be unambiguous how wrong I was because I've been very visible on this. Um, And here's the other problem. So so you mentioned the index. It's the Chapwood index, C-H-A-P-W-O-O-D. That's kind of an alternative to shadowstats.com, right? The Chapwood index takes 500 items, presumably rents and things like that in 50 major cities. So it's, it's it's a total of, of 50,000 measurements. And and they asked, how fast is the price going up? And this is admittedly a city-centric measure, but don't forget, that's where all the bodies are. And, and it's simple. It's old school, right? If the rent goes up 10%, you're not adjusting for whether that apartment's bigger or smaller or painted with better paint, right? It's just the price of renting a place. It's the cost of living. And the Chapwood Index showed, now this I'm not even sure I believe, shows that we've been hovering around 10% in the major cities. Now, seems high to me, but I have a student who went to Genentech a couple years ago, and he lives in the Tenderloin District. And that's where people are defecating in the streets, and the homeless are lining the sidewalks. And he has to walk over sleeping bodies to get to work. And his apartment costs him $4,000 a month. So there's something wrong, right? There's something very wrong. So so if the Chapman Index says inflation's 10%, and the Fed and the bean counters are using, let's round it to 2%, and they're saying we have 3% GDP, which is rounding up, then the Fed is saying nominal growth is 5%, subtract inflation, we're down to 3%. If inflation's 10%, we've been in our deep recession the whole way. Now, you say, but, but people have jobs. You go, yeah, well, people had jobs in Weimar, Germany, too. While they were working in Weimar, Germany, society was completely collapsing. Right? Same with Russia. People had jobs in Russia. The Soviet Union in 1980, what it, I can't even remember what year it was they came down, but 1985, safely before the Berlin Wall fell. People had jobs and they were broke.
0: Yeah, yeah. No, it makes a lot of sense. The other thing is when you look at demographics, as as you referenced earlier, uh, Mark Yusko has a great quote, demographics are destiny. Um, Ralph Paul has talked about this. There's been some good talks on Real Vision and you, you talked about the fourth turning when you look at the Japanese equity market peaked in eighty nine ninety, never recovered. As you mentioned, when you look at European equities peaked, never recovered, they have some really bad demographics, Greece, Italy, Spain, um, Japan, you know, probably the worst, but when you look at the U S not great demographics, but better than, than all the other ones. Um, you know, some people are looking at at this as okay, during the next downturn, like you mentioned, that equity market might not be like a ping pong ball hitting the the, the the golf path cart path there. And this might be a really long, slow slog just when you look at the demographics and the baby boomers retiring and shifting out of equities.
1: Well, so if we have a big downturn we're gonna see a bunch of boomers get fired. How do I know? Well, you know, if you look at a major corporation, they often, they often lay off their most expensive employees during the downturn. Uh, that's not well known, but I, I consult for a pharmaceutical company and they have various layers of payment. And there's, there's something like nine scientists at the top pay scale. And the last time they did a serious liquidation of carcasses, uh, they dropped eight of the nine. And so, so, so now since the last bust, the boomers have overcome the problems by just staying in the workforce, but they're now 10 years older. And so if they, if they get sent packing again, they're going to be, you know, these guys are dragging oxygen tanks behind them. Now they're old men, old women, old everybody. And so, uh, and the U.S. isn't necessarily better demographically than Japan. I don't know, actually. This is getting outside my skill set. But I, my understanding is we're just 10 years behind them, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. which means we could be demographically worse off because they could be scrubbing the problem out. Right. If they're ahead of us, that means that their demographic problem is going to be over soonest, too. So I think all the major countries do. By the way, economic collapses don't help demographics at all. Right.
0: Right. <laughs> Yeah, and when you look at GDP around the world, as you mentioned, you know, looking at US, obviously China is the, the growth engine of the world, but there's a lot of concerns about trusting the numbers. And I know uh, Jeff Gunlock has pointed this out in the past is when you look at China, maybe not growing, what is it, between 7 and 9%, maybe they're growing 5 to 6%, you know, then all of a sudden that plunges the world GDP into negative two or 3% territory. So um, when you look at G- GDP and growth prospects around the world, it's hard to understand where the growth is gonna come from going forward when you look at demographics. You can look at India maybe, a couple of these frontier markets, but it's hard to see where else the growth is going to come from. The organic growth, not, not stimulus.
1: <laughs> well, the, the, there's an unfairness here that actually is causing problems. And so uh, so if you have a system that supports big companies, what would that be? Well, for example, the tax breaks, Trump's tax breaks. I'm not a Trump hater for the record. I'm Trump tolerant. And, and there's an aspect of Trump that I find so entertaining. I'm going, you know, he's like, he's like a teenager, right? He's putting it to everybody. And, uh, but his tax breaks help the largest corporations, right? That's undeniable, I think, right? Yeah. Well, we don't get our growth from the large corporation. We get them from the small ones, the startups, the, you know, under a hundred people, right? Our growth came from Microsoft when Bill Gates was a snot-nosed kid. Right. And and so by helping the large ones, you're putting down, you know, if if you got to compete against Procter and Gamble, which is a sluggish company, presumably, and you can't compete against them because they're getting all these big breaks. Then then you're going to have a slow growing economy. Right. You want an economy where where the, where you've cleared away the dead wood. And, and, and there's room. And so, you know, one of the merits of a bubble is, um, which by the way, is not the merits of three bubbles. Um, But every once in a while, I think it's a good idea to have a bubble. The reason it is is because every once in a while it's a good idea to to fund every cockeyed, unimaginable idea that people can come up with. Because then sometimes you get stuff that you wouldn't have gotten. So out of the, the tech bubble came some amazingly important stuff. But you can't then go do it again. And the next one, by the way, was a bubble which we didn't create a new world. We just put people into bankruptcy. And then the following one is going to be, we didn't create a new world. We just put companies into bankruptcy. And so, you know, and people, I don't know how much, I don't know how well read your readers are, but according to James Grant, 14% of the S&P 500 doesn't have the cash flow to pay the interest rates on their debt, which means they're insolvent. 14% of the S&P is insolvent. And that's not being able to pay the interest rates on their debt with interest rates at stupidly low levels. So if for some reason, the the interest rates have to go up, why? Well, it could be the Fed has to fight a real inflation scare, right? That seems unlikely because they all seem like cowards to me. So they just won't. But what if they get forced up? I'm not a big believer that the Fed gets to just pick a rate. They can for a while. But I, every once in a while, you know, you know, they, they thought they could keep Trump out of the White House, too. And that didn't work. And so I think interest rates could do a run. You could just have a bond scare, right? Just a, a, a run on the bank. And, and if interest rates start soaring, then then you're just going to have a mess on your hands. You're going to have companies that can't pay on their debt, they're gonna be defaulting on their debt. They say banks are in good shape. Are the banks gonna be in good shape when the biggest companies in the country, in the world are defaulting on their debt? How's that gonna work out for you? And then you got this thing where you say, oh, the economy's roaring. Well, I can show you statistic after statistic that shows the auto industry's in a recession. I I hate the nomenclature of a recession of a subsector because I go, dude, it's the economy. The auto industry's in recession. The trucking industry is in recession. The rail industry is in recession. How can those three be in recession with us not being in recession? What's not in recession? Facebook? Netflix? Right. Apple? Apple hasn't made a new product in, what, eight years now? Yeah. Now, I don't care if they keep selling iPhones. They're not. They're not a growth company.
0: Right. I think when you look at, as you mentioned, the Fed may be losing control of the long end of the curve. So only controlling rates to a certain point. I think there's this debate where, okay, if they come in for more easing, if they try to keep pat- patching over the problem, will they be able to suppress rates at the longer end or could rates maybe get away from the Fed? And then that could be, that would definitely be a catalyst for equities to fall, as you mentioned.
1: Well, if I'm long-term capital management and I'm 10x levered long-term treasuries because I was promised that they were going to protect them, and all of a sudden I got to get out of my position, uh, the Fed has a problem, Yeah, right? These are There's some big numbers out there. Meanwhile, you don't have China or Russia buying treasuries. And so this repo market problem is, I, I, I'm still not sure people understand it. Um, They're trying to, but, you know, they they tried to downplay it. I I think it's the banking system breaking.
0: Yeah, and you had a really great uh, segment in the year-end review talking about, you know, you requested inbound inquiries, basically, to to help teach you about what's going on. And you had hundreds or a couple hundred people or however many it was. What was the synopsis that you finally kind of reached? Was it really that nobody knows the true cause of what's happening?
1: Well, I am convinced that there are people who know. Mm-hmm. I af- after I, I tried to understand what was going on in the repo market, what was clear is the Fed was in a total panic. Mm-hmm. And what was clear is we were not being told why. And I actually solicited the Twitter sphere and said, What do you guys think? And oh, everyone had an opinion and everyone was sure they were right. But I got every imaginable answer. Um, It could be something real simple, like Jamie Dimon was shaking down the Fed and he knew it and he said, look, if I can get the Fed to break on this issue, we can get banking regulation to loosen up. Right. And he single handedly might have the firepower to do it. Could be Deutsche Bank was going down the tubes. Who knows? Right. It could be anything. I spent two hours on the phone one Saturday night with Grant Williams, you mentioned by the name Grant. He's getting to the point where you just call him like you call Prince, right? Madonna. There's Grant, right? But then there's there's James Grant. So you got to be a little more precise. So for two hours, we chatted and and it was he was writing the section, uh, writing a, a, a blog on this topic for two hours. We got to the end. We said no one knows. We both agreed that no one has a clue. Now, I think people do have a clue, but they were not speaking up or they couldn't get their voice above the din. I, I don't know.
0: I think there's a lot that we're not being told and being privy to. Um, I think that's clear. We saw that report from the, was it the BIS, Bank of International Settlements, or now I'm blanking on the name, where, where they basically stated that there was a hedge fund in trouble. Right. Um, or multiple funds. And then I saw some language to where the Fed, I guess, can can lend directly to hedge funds through the program.
1: They don't have to. They don't have right. to. So, 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 so the Fed's not supposed to lend directly to hedge funds. What will happen is if they want to lend to hedge funds, they'll start telling everyone they should lend to hedge funds. And everyone will start getting numb to the idea. And then they'll lend to hedge funds, right? Mm-hmm. That's it. That's what they'll do. Right. They make the stuff up. They, they're they now trying to claim QE is not abnormal. Right. So th- so they're either I keep coming back to this. I'm going to declare they're either stupid or they're liars. I don't know which one it is. Right. I God, both of them are disquieting. Right. So the Fed can doesn't have to lend a hedge fund. The Fed lends to J.P. Morgan, who 20 seconds later lends to the hedge fund. Now it's legal. They just, they laundered the money. It's like a mob.
0: Yeah. And the, the the other thing is we've talked a lot about this on the program and, you know, going back to uh, David Einhorn's article, we touched on this when he came on is when you really look at whether QE is debt monetization or not, I think he brought up a great point of, okay, if the Fed is buying from primary dealers, You know, after that debt gets gets bought, you know, by these banks and primary dealers, then it's just they're kind of like a middleman. So there's no difference between the Fed just buying it from the Treasury. Um, It's pretty much the same thing with a twenty second with
1: a twenty second (laughs) lag, right? Um, He's correct. Now here's where the QE debate comes in. In in my year review, I had a student produce this great graphic. I couldn't believe I was the first to do it. I googled my ass off trying to find it, but I, I took that that margarine container from the web that says, I can't, I can't believe it's not butter. And I said to my student, I said, can you, can, you, can you Photoshop that for me and make it say, I can't believe it's not QE? He actually went to a website, found the font that they use on the butter thing and did this absolutely perfect looking, I can't believe it's not QE. So so the, the Fed claimed it was not QE because they claimed they were not buying the long end, right? There's a, apparently a cutoff they use to say it's not QE. To me, the acid test, the the ultimate test, whether it's QE, is whether how much their balance sheet grows. So if the Fed lends 100 billion into the market in the morning and then they take it back in the afternoon, that's not QE, right? Now, there is a slight increase. There's kind of a low at what a chemist would call a steady state QE, but 100 billion is peanuts. Now, what happens, though, is they start saying, well, you know, they, it's this Overton window crap they do. And they say, well, we're going to lend for a week now. Uh, we're going to lend for two weeks now. So there's, they're stretching it out. And so what happens is if you put out a bunch of money every morning and it sits there for two weeks, now the quantity sitting out there starts to become significant. All you have to do to find out if it's QE is boot up a plot, a recent plot of the Fed balance sheet. And if the balance sheet is going back up, it's Q.E. That's my opinion. That's a, that's the opinion of a chemist. If you're getting the opinion of a chemist, you probably should also get a CAT scan. So,
0: <laughs> now isn't it also a little bit strange to where they they just deny that? Well, first they deny it's QE, but they've denied that the balance sheet is even increasing when it's li- literally clearly printed on the Fred <laughs> website. Is, is that a case of of, of liter- there's just not enough critical thinking out there in the marketplace?
1: No, but no one believes it. <laughs> so this is like, like your kid comes home, 16-year-old comes home, and there's a dent in the car. What are the odds that the story, a dog ran in front of the car... <sighs> is remotely true, right? Right? You go, right, of course the dog ran. Had nothing to do with the fact you were probably drunker than a pig, right? <laughs> and, and so the Fed says it's not QE. The Fed says its balance sheet's not going. You look and you go, yes, it is. I can see it from Ithaca, New York. Your balance sheet is growing, so stop lying to me. But they keep saying it. So here's here's the problem. Yeah. If we reach a point, we, the collective wisdom of the marketplace, reaches a point where we say, you know what? The Fed might say they have our backs, but first of all, we know that they're serious liars. And second of all, we know that they also might be on top of that serious idiots. And so now you've got a lying idiot and you're going, I think I'm going to delever that 10x fund and, you know, what what were they called? Uh risk risk what would what, what Dalio call those things? Jesus, I forgot. Risk parity? Risk parity funds. Yeah. The risk parity funds they say, oh, you know what you can do? You can get the lever of bonds. You can get the same <laughs> re- return on a bond by leverage. I'm going, Oh, no one's ever thought of that. Right? Oh my God, what an original idea. Someone should get John Merriweather on the phone and tell him about this one. And uh and so, so the Fed wants the hedge funds to lever up and buy bonds. Then there was this proposal by this Andofado guy who I used to chat with all the time. I was supposed to do an interview with him. He offered, and we were supposed to go on KKYR radio, and we were going to debate modern monetary theory. Don't ask me why, right? How can he win, right? This is like, you know, the Harlem Globetrotters going against some Girl Scout troop. What if they lose? Right, that's a bad thing. Um, and uh, and uh, and so he he had this plan where where he proposed that and, and he he published this paper white paper with this woman named Trigg I think her name is and he proposed that we should let the banks um, we should let the banks know. That they can sell us treasuries anytime they want, and what that'll allow them to do is 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 to take the treasuries off their balance sheet, and replace it with reserves. And 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 when they need it, but but what the, now they can do is they can take all this excess reserves, IOER, interest on liquidity back. You can get it guaranteed. You don't have to wait. For a plan, right? You don't have to wait for tarp. You don't have to wait for anything. You just do it, right? And so, what they're saying is, let's turn over QE to the banks. So I'm thinking, oh, there's a good idea, right? Hot and cold running QE to the bankers. They they'd never be that. So I challenged Al and said, look. I think you are setting up the banks to leverage, to go heavily leveraged. He says, what makes you say that? And I said, well, what if instead of doing what you said, the bank takes all those excess reserves, instead of buying treasuries, which is what you want, what if they just lend against them, right? That's what reserves are for. If a bank has a billion in reserves, they lend 10 billion out and the reserves back it, right? Well, if you get the banks to if you get, if, if you give, promise the banks they can get out of a, out of a jam anytime they need to, then they'll say hell let's let's just use those reserves to lever up and make make more money in the in some leveraged market some marketplace that we can make a lot of money we can our prop desk can, can go wild, and he said well I guess in theory they could do that I'm going dude they're gonna find the best deal. And then what happened? Well, first of all, he went silent on the interview, and then he unfollowed me on Twitter. I think I pissed him off. He probably saw me call Jay Poe an idiot too many times. He probably ran out. of. You got to admit, a central banker doesn't want to listen to some chemist call central bankers idiots day after day after day.
0: (laughs) Right. And you've also had some inbound on looking at zero hedge. As you've mentioned, you have to have a filter when looking at it, but it can really provide a lot of insight. How much uh, hate mail, Not I don't want to use the term hate mail, but how much inbound have you gotten on uh, your affiliation with uh, being published on Zero Hedge?
1: Well, I I find the people who hate Zero Hedge to be just narrow-minded. So I often see some story that I think is really an important story and I'll I'll I might flag Zero Hedge and say hey you might guys might want to watch this right and I know they watched my Twitter feed uh, amongst several hundred others of course um, and then I'll go over to Zero Hedge and they already had it most of the time they already had it and and I'm and there's stuff on Zero Hedge that's there for years before before the mainstream media picks it up yeah and so. And, and then at the same time, there's some nonsense there. Right. And, and some of it's not doesn't even try to be not nonsense. Some of it is just entertaining as hell, you know, stupid stuff on college campuses and things like that. But but if there's a lot of smart people publishing a lot of smart stuff on zero hedge, so if you want to if you want to pretend like zero hedge isn't worth anything, have a ball. But I think you're a narrow minded person. Probably you're going to end up in fetal position in the next downturn. Because you're probably, you don't like Zero Hedge because Zero Hedge, you say, by the way, you're screwed. And they say, oh, you guys have been wrong for so long, right? Yeah, it gets tiresome. Anyone who listens to Zero Hedge is an idiot. And I'm going, you know, if I hadn't listened to Zero Hedge, I would have done much better over the last 10 years. But the fact I listen to Zero Hedge, maybe over the next 10 years, I'll do a lot better than that idiot who thinks that, who doesn't have enough brain cells to filter? So hate zero hedge. I don't care.
0: I think you brought up a good point of really their day in court isn't uh, you know hasn't arrived yet, and then after that point, you know the people who say that everything is going to be fine and the the Fed always has our backs and the organic growth is is going to you know, keep going and everything is fine, then, you know, if we, if we have a mild recession and a, a mild end of the business cycle or credit cycle, then, you know, then then that'll have some merit. But it's really hard when you look at where pension plans are, the underfunded liabilities, when you look at the student loans, when you look at valuations, when you look at demographics, all of these things, it's, it's hard to see how that's going to not, you know, be smoothed over, right?
1: Yeah, and and you know these things you mention, they're not. You can get lost talking in things in terms of dollars. Mm-hmm. So when you talk about demographics, if you start bringing dollars into the story, like there's so many dollars of this or that, you get lost real fast. I, I try to think of economics in terms of maybe work output or something. So so demographic problem is when you've got a higher percentage of the population not working and a lower percentage working. And it means, therefore, that the the high percentage who are not working are expecting to have all their personal needs satisfied by those who are working. It's just that's the way it is, right? So if you go to a restaurant, someone's going to serve you the food, someone's going to make you the food. And when a small percentage of the population is doing all the work and fix painting your house and plowing your driveway and all those things, for a large percentage of the population, you have a demographic problem.
0: Yeah, yeah, and I think one of the ish, big issues that I think is on people's mind is just the lack of wage growth um, that's driving a lot of the inequality discussion. So I think when you look at you know prices rising of, of health insurance and housing and asset prices, and even things like food and energy, Um, You know, food has definitely come up, even if they're maybe not measuring it as so. But when you look at all these things, the wage growth just hasn't been there. So you can look at all these statistics, like how much uh, the baby boomers had to save up for a down payment and afford on a mortgage versus today's type of salaries and all these different metrics. But it seems like that's one of the biggest things on people's minds.
1: So, so growth is a fascinating one uh, on several levels. Let me, let me digress, which, which if, if, if I have a skill, digression is the skill. Uh, if you go back to the Middle Ages and everyone got wiped off the surface of the earth and there were very few people and there's a lot of land and there was, and it was the beginning of what's called the middle class, because now the nobles, there, there was, there was a shortage of workers and they had to start kissing their asses, right? Because, because there's no one to work the fields and stuff like that. They talk often talk about the the gains of the middle class in terms of wages, but I'm going. What you know? What you had one fourth the population or something left, and and therefore you had four times as much gold than you had before they all died off. But what does that mean? That has no meaning to me, right? That's almost an inflation. But what must have happened is that on a per capita basis they must have gotten more productive. Or what must have happened is that the resource, the the fruits of their labor got less directed into the castle at the top of the hill and more directed into their own crockpots. And so it's not about them having more gold or less gold, it's about them being able to produce more and consume more. And, And so I like to think in those kind of terms. Now, where were we? The other thing you talked about wage growth. Um, when I was a kid, I used to carry golf bags for a living. And I happen to remember that when I was 12 years old, 14 years old, that zone that I could make 250 an hour carrying golf bags. Now, I also just by chance, I you're not going to believe this. I wrote a blog on this that got published by Elizabeth Warren. <laughs> Well, she cares about the little guy. This is before she was famous. This is when she was at Harvard. So I, I, I so what happened is I also happen to remember one night, I can tell you where the pizza place was. My brother and I went and got a pizza. It was an extra large pizza from a pizzeria. And I don't want someone to say, oh, you can get a cheaper pizza at Pizza Hut. I'm talking about the good pizzas at a pizzeria. Extra large, doesn't taste like cardboard, nice pizza, cost me $2. Well, that meant that I was paid one and a quarter pizzas, extra large pizzas per hour. And if you go to the local pizza shop, the one with an Italian guy flipping that sucker behind the counter, an extra large pizza is probably 16 bucks. That means I was paid the, the spending power what's now $20 an hour. So so, how do you? Po- so I used to be able to carry golf bags a couple times a week and have spending money for the rest of the year, and I could buy a six pack of Schlitz <laughs> for like eighty eight cents. Right. So I was making at twelve years old. I was making enough money per hour to buy uh, to buy two and a half, six packs. And you go, why is that relevant? Well, when I was 12, I was actually drinking beer. So that's a problem. That's a separate issue altogether. But um, I, of course, was getting someone to help me buy it. Right.
0: <laughs> right. Now, w- when you look at this next kind of demographic shift, and when you look at the politics, you mentioned Elizabeth Warren, and she outlined her her student loan forgiveness plan. And you have Yang, and Andrew Yang, who outlined his everyone gets $1,000 a month, I think it was a $2 trillion plan. Um, now, when you look at, obviously, the base case is Trump goes back in. Um, but if you if you look and, and talk about, okay, what if a Democrat does go in? Obviously, there's some issues if do they control the House and the Senate and, and getting things passed. But you know, we could really see some interesting—I <laughs> don't know if "interesting" is the right word for it—economic ec- policies coming down the pike if if we the country were to go that direction, and if, with the Democrat, is that something that's uh, concerning to you? Everyone gets, you know, a thousand dollars a month. Every all the student loan debt is wiped out. I mean, where, you know, <laughs> how,
1: where, what direction? might not go in. Well, I fully understand where it comes from. Right. That's the the bankers got there is now it's our time yeah. to get ours. so. So if someone thinks, let's say a Democrat gets an office if, or Democrats get control, whatever if someone thinks that's not coming, they're dreaming. Right. It is going to be free shit for everybody. Yeah. And and maybe maybe they'll come back to the planet surface. But my guess is there's going to be a lot of it. And the problem is it's going to, it's a very compelling story. We got screwed, right? That's going to, that's, that's so marketable. And, and the problem is if you say free healthcare, that's great. Talk to a doctor and find out how many more patients they can do a week. There aren't enough doctors. And, and, and. And, you know, free tuition, talk to the, as we talked about the guy who already paid his tuition for his kids or the person who worked their way through college, that almost doesn't exist anymore, right? You can't afford to do it. Um, and so, so there's, there's going to be, there's going to be tension, big tension. Free giveaways are not going to be fair. They never are fair, right? The freebies. It's not like everyone's going to Oh, it's great. We all win, right? There's no giving stuff away for free. Someone's got to pay. Whoever's got to pay is going to be an unhappy camper. And by the way, the ones who have to pay tend to be powerful. So it's quite possible that no matter what they promise to do, that, that there will be a, a lobby that can stop it. I don't know.
0: Yeah. Yeah. I think when you look at some of these plans that have been set, put forth, there's definitely I could see where the unfairness comes in for the person paying their loan uh, down and and maybe working an extra job or whatever the case is, or, or let's say just maybe consuming less, um, in order to pay down the the note.
1: The other thing is, is that college campus, there's twice as many kids on a college campus than ought to exist. Mm -hmm. Right? Mm -hmm. So I'm not going to name them, but Cornell has more majors than any school in the country. And some of those, as I like to say, some of these majors should be minors. Mm -hmm. And some of these minors should just be courses and some of these courses should be history, right? (laughs) (laughs) And, uh, what happens when a kid's excuse to go to college is why not? Right, right. That's, that's the sole purpose. So, so you've got schools there's a school in Texas, one that you'd recognize by name that, that had online reading assignments and they could monitor how much the kids were reading. It was a smart enough algorithm that, you know, the fact that the window was open doesn't mean they're reading. They're reading when the window's open and it's scrolling. So the algorithm's smart enough to figure out if the kids are scrolling through their, their documents, reading them. And their conclusion was that, that the kids were reading, and I don't know if this is on a per course basis or per semester basis, doesn't matter. Um, the kids were reading 162 minutes per semester. That college has no reason to exist. There is no purpose to that college. And the reason that we have such a mess, have you tried to hire a carpenter or a plumber? The reason that it costs so much and you can't get a good one is because we're training people to be sociologists. I'll name a field. We're training people, which really means we're training them to be baristas at Starbucks. And so the problem is, is that we've, we're counting, we're, we're measuring our success by the metric of college degrees. We're not measuring it by the metric of whether we're training people to do what the economy needs. The economy right now is demanding baristas, apparently. <laughs> and it needs a bunch of stuff. But the fact of the matter is, and, you know, there's some unbelievably stupid courses. And the kid who goes through 120 credits to college, it I don't think anyone can get through 120 credits without signing up for something stupid. Right. I, you know, I took a few courses that were probably stupid. Right. In part just because 120 credits of mechanical engineering is too much. Um, But here's the reality is in a private school, when you're paying the full tab, if you take a course in 11th century heteronormativity in Tibet, you're paying $8,000 for that mind-expanding experience. Wow. You're paying $8,000 on average from a private school to take a four-credit hour course in whatever stupid subject you, you take. It starts adding up. I'm not saying that you know, 120 credits of tough stuff is very hard to do, if not impossible, for most of us. But when you start loading up kids with majors and with minors and with fluff courses, and then you're charging them 8,000 bucks that that's a non extinguishable loan, right? That if as a parent, if I were writing the check and I found my kid got a B plus and gender studies, I'll pick on them. Come at me. I don't care. Take a piece out of me if you can. Um, The the irony is people who study gender studies usually are experts at gender studies already. They're already studying gender. That seems to be their life's passion. By the way, you know, if, if you, let's say you major in gender studies, show me a corporation that will see your resume and say, oh yeah, you know, we should hire someone and bring them into our corporate structure who has majored in gender studies. Right? And I'll tell you why they won't, because Because they're going to look and say, you know, this person's going to come in and raise holy hell. This person majored in fighting. So Jonathan Haidt would say, look, if you spent more time in college trying to learn and less time trying to fight, you'd be better off.
0: Yeah. Do you think this is an issue of where the jobs just aren't available? Obviously, for certain majors, they're just not marketable at all. But even with some, the- Well, have they ever been available in those majors? Right. And, and even with some stronger majors, there's still the, the jobs just aren't there. And even, even the jobs that are available, the, the salaries and wages are, are less than what it is to basically service that, that debt that they took on.
1: Right. So the, the cost of going to college has soared and the payment that you get after you go to college has plummeted. Bad combination. Yeah. By the way, I happened to be talking to the elevator repairman in our building, of, oh, a few months back. And he was a young kid. And I said, you get paid much? He said, well, not now. I'm in, I'm in an apprentice program. So I went to Bosey's for a year, maybe, or something like that. And then he says, I'm an apprentice program. So said, no, they don't pay me very well. But it'll last five years. And and, uh, and then he said, then I'll make good money. I said, what's good money? He said, oh, I'll make over $100,000. Wow. And we're not training those guys. We're not training elevator repairmen. We're not training carpenters. You now, if you train carpenters, say, look, let's train them how to be a carpenter. Let's give them some computer science. Let's give them some accounting, some business courses, maybe a course in some sort of graphic design. That that guy would go out and own the world.
0: Yeah, one thing that comes to mind is the issue of the financial sector growing so large as a percentage of the economy. Yeah, that's a problem. You've you've written about this and talked about this as well. And so you have also a lot of people being trained, whether it's mathematics, statistics, you know, people who maybe maybe they'd be studying chemistry or something else. And then they're basically going to work for a large bank or for a large financial institution. How do you feel about that piece?
1: Um, It depends what they do. If they're writing code so that the bank runs more efficiently, then that's fine. If they're working on a prop trading desk, they bring, in my opinion, precisely zero to the table. Um, Does Warren Buffett create wealth? No. Warren Buffett does not create wealth. Warren Buffett aggregates wealth. The people who invest in Berkshire are wealthier, but it's a very passive thing, right? I mean, that's like standing at the bottom of a waterfall and claiming credit for the waterfall. No, you're just, you got buckets you're collecting at the bottom. You know, there's a little tacit amount. It's conceivable some of the investments foster capitalism in some indirect way. Whereas at some level, you know, angel investors and stuff, these guys create wealth, right? These guys are, if if they're not, you know, if they're not strip mining some some companies, but if they're real angel investor, like David Einhorn's father, Stephen Einhorn is an angel investor, and he'll go provide he'll go provide money to some some company that builds computers that are liquid cooled. They're literally immersed in liquid to cool them which allows them to be more efficient, right? That David, Stephen Einhorn is, is part of wealth creation because he's providing the capital to a company that could change the world maybe, right? Mm-hmm.
0: Yeah, now that brings up a good point. And what comes to mind is some of these zombie companies. So switching over to, let's say, a value investor of, of what Greenlight does and, and other value investors, there's been this... I guess you could call it a misallocation of capital due to the zero bound rates that we've seen. So looking at Tesla as, as one example, and um, I know Grant Williams has talked a lot about this and a lot of conversations on Real Vision, but there seems to be this, this element of when you look at capital markets or when you look at stocks like Tesla or whatever it is, there's, it's just this lack of critical thinking of being able to see something that's kind of in plain view. but you know we have seen this in the past
1: you know play out so I, you can see parallels here. Well, you know what the question is how do you measure critical thinking? If, if critical thinking means I can I can buy Tesla shares, if David tap Tepper buys Tesla and then sells them for a lot more, there's a decent chance Tepper saw something that told him these things are going up. So that's pretty good, critical thinking, but it's not, it's not wealth creation. Um, and, and the, the private equity guys who buy companies load them up with debt and then sell them off. That's wealth destruction. Right? So I think Toys R Us got pounded. I mean, they probably would have died anyways, but, um, But 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 you buy a company and then you you sell off all its assets and you got the company and you pay yourself big dividends and then you sell the carcass. Now, why does that work? Interesting question. Why? Why does that work? And the way I think, tell me if I'm wrong, I'm guessing here. I think the way that works is in theory, if you took a viable company and you destroyed it then you'd lose, right? That's not a winning strategy. But here's what happens is you, you take on all this debt because the banking system is now so unmoored that, they, that any idiot can borrow money, especially rich idiots. And so they take on all this debt, they pay themselves well. And then here's the magic ingredient. They sell off the carcass. And because we're in such a whopping credit bubble, there's stupid money out there buying dead carcasses for serious money, right? You couldn't make money by destroying the company. You had nothing, no value left, right? Where's the money in that? If you sold off all the assets, you got nothing. There's You just liquidated a company. But if you can then take that shell of a company and sell it as though it's not a shell of a company, you make a lot of money. That's how the uh, the real estate private equity guys work, I think is they they buy up the houses taking a, a single family house and renting it, it's a lousy way to make money generally because anyone who lives in a house which many of your listeners do know that it costs a lot to keep that house running right and you got the mortgage you got the taxes you got everything right so how do you make money renting to single families and the answer is you buy the house at a deep discount because they got the crap kicked out of them in 0809 and then you do so with dirt cheap money because the Fed's a bunch of punks. And then you leverage up. So you take a razor thin profit margin and then you just do the risk parity drill again. Now here's what's going to happen. Next downturn, these houses are going to stop making money or when, if interest rates go up. And you know, these guys are funding it probably using short-term debt, right? are probably rolling over debts. Yeah, the minute they can't roll over the short-term debt for a usable rate, they're going to liquidate. So I thought that after the huge real estate boom, that created this shadow inventory that was tied up temporarily while people could make money renting houses and the rents have soared. But then I watched a video on Real Vision by this guy, Keith Giroux. And he pointed out, and I'm stunned by this, back in 0809, the housing market was a mess, so much of a mess that they just stopped collecting mortgages from people and people, instead of evicting them, they just stayed. Yeah. And I remember that vividly. What I didn't know, what Keith Giro claims, it's just some guy on the internet. I'm Maybe he's right, maybe he's not. Real Vision apparently respects them, but Real Vision's has at least one serious idiot on it so far. Um, he said that there literally are millions of people who haven't paid their mortgage payment in ten years, mm-hmm. and these are and you know what they're doing? They're adding the mispayments on top of it, and they're on the books are calling that legitimate. So they're registered as having this this huge mortgage portfolio, and the people haven't paid in ten years. So that re- it's called regulatory forbearance, essentially. So you're moving the goalposts to make it look like it's working. But if there's millions of those, what's going to happen in the next crisis? Yeah, and Real Vision had an
0: interesting housing week, they called it. Um, this was a few weeks back. And one of the interesting things brought up was how when you look at you know the way prices have just rebounded back to all-time highs of where they were pre-crisis, there are a few interesting dynamics. One is the just the inventory. So, a lot of baby boomers are actually staying put and not going to these retirement communities. They're staying in their house. They, maybe they're one of their kids is living there, or maybe in between after college, that type of thing. Um, but they're they're staying in their homes. So, you have this inventory imbalance where there's just not a lot available. And then you also have this dynamic where. These large private equity companies um, and some hedge funds own these huge portfolios of single-family homes, and so they have this pricing power where they have to show you know, increase in earnings every quarter. So they they've been raising rents, whereas maybe the, in the old days, you know, you had a guy who owned a small portfolio of maybe four or five homes and maybe he didn't raise your rent every year. Maybe it happened every few, few years. So I thought that was kind of an interesting dynamic too.
1: There's another one Malden mentions, and that is that um, it's a more general debt point. That is, he says that there, you know, if you buy a big and chunk of debt, let's say it's a debt for a, a tranche of debt for some for Deutsche Bank, I don't know, but, but let's say you buy the debt for some smaller company. Um, if there's a lot of owners, that debt will trade fairly liquidly on the on the market. And to the extent you have to mark to market, then if that debt goes bad, you got to mark it down, right? The auditor is going to make you mark it down. Uh, at least they should, right? There's a lot of liars in that crowd too. But, um, but if you buy the entire tranche, there is no marketplace for that. So you get to just pretend like that debt is still fully functional. And there's a, he says there's a ton of these single owner tranches in which are dysfunctional, but they haven't been marked to market.
0: Yeah. And then when you look at where rates are obviously fueling the, 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 the uh, home prices as well, where people can afford a much larger mortgage with a three and a half four 4% rate, you know, imagine if rates normalized to five, six, even 7%, what would that do to, to housing prices?
1: especially given the people who have to buy from them are the next generation and there's no evidence they have any money.
0: Right. So so do you think this is a situation where, you know, I saw an article in the Wall Street Journal where there was going to be, I forget the exact numbers, and and this woman who wrote the article was on the Real Vision Housing Week in one of the videos, but talking about just this huge supply coming online of uh, of baby boomers, you know, selling their homes. But maybe this is a situation where the home isn't sold and then maybe it's just passed to the next generation of kids. So I think that's an interesting dynamic too.
1: Well, actually a potential solution. If you look in the olden days, if you come to a town like Ithaca or something, you can see these big mcmansion things from, you know, 1870 or something, some big, big Victorian mansion. Mm-hmm. And they get repurposed. They become in in our town, they become student housing, something like that. They become funeral homes, things like that. Mm -hmm. And, and then, but the problem is, is what do you do with a a house that that's the modern era version of that, but it's out in the country. Mm -hmm. Right? So I live out in the neighborhood and they're all McMansions. I happen to live on the lake and that is a highly limited availability resource. Um, but, uh, but there are these big, huge McMansions. I'd say the average McMansion, body, what, a 4,000 square feet or something, right? These are ridiculously big houses. The boomers at some point will say, look, I, I don't want to pay the taxes. I don't want to pay the heating bill. I don't want to have to re-roof that thing. I don't have to paint that thing. I, I my retirement account is, is not what I was hoping it would be, you know, the uh, state of Illinois has cut off my pension, you know, or reduced it in some way. Uh, and, and who's gonna buy that house, right? So everything really has to reprice somehow. It has to come back to equilibrium. Now, one of the possible solutions, and at first it will be marketed as a disaster, and it's already being marketed as such. How many times have you heard reference to some kid living in the basement on their parents' couch? I think that will become the norm and we will have what's called multi-generational families. Now, what's it going to look like? Well, one of the possibilities is that by having a family in the same house as the grandparents, this is self-evident to anyone who's done this before, you have um, you have the ability to take care of the old folks instead of sending them off to a nursing home. Mm-hmm. And until, up until that point, you have old folks to take care of the kids so you don't have to pay for daycare. You have only one roof to replace. You have only one house to paint. And so by putting two generations in one house, you essentially cut the costs in half and you don't have to pay big daycare fees and stuff. And so, you know, there's a tremendous lot. And I've never met a grandmother who didn't want to be within spitting distance of the grandchildren. And so there's kind of a win-win, right? So, so grandma and grandpa take care of shit that 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 the while the parents go out and, and and earn a living wage, right? And so I think this, I think there's an upside, right? You can almost say, hey, this this wouldn't be such a bad thing, right? But it therefore means we're going back to being regional. It means the kids don't, you know, grow up in Ithaca and go to Boston for a job, or the grandparents move to Boston or whatever. But it 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 it, it ha- it changes the rules. Yeah, that's a that's
0: a really interesting way to think about it. Um, so, just so kind of ending on that point of of just a, a mis a, a repricing of of all assets, you know, throughout the conversation, like we just looked at real estate, but when you look at equities, fixed income, pretty much everything except gold, I guess you could say, um, it, it, there's going to have to be some type of repricing there. And, and as you've talked about in the past, basically looking for maybe even a 50, 60 percent correction. Um, and, you know, if there's a 20, 30 percent, as you've said before, you're probably wrong. What are you what are you really looking for for the next for that next downturn?
1: Well, so here's here's the deal. What? Uh, in two thousand eighteen I used twenty metrics to show the valuation of the market, and all all twenty were within some sort of error bar of, of two fold overvalued. And these are price to sales, price to GDP, price to you name it, twenty of them. And they show two things. They say we're a round number, two two times GDP. And they show that, that back in two thousand and eight, nine period, that we actually never really got to deeply valued to deeply undervalued. Now, people think we did because, you know, when they, they when you hurdle to the earth from 60,000 feet, by the time you get saved, or when you're in a bungee jump, by the time you get saved, uh, it sure felt like you hit bottom,
0: right? Yep.
1: And, uh, and it was scary as hell. But But we were below fair value by a number of metrics for about a month. And that was the very tip of the V-shaped recovery. Now, the problem, therefore, is is that since that time, the GDP has grown optimistically, because as I've said, I don't trust the numbers, maybe 50%. While the equity markets, what have they made? 250, 300%? Yeah. They're supposed to track each other. Among the many metrics, they're supposed to track each other. That's Buffett's favorite, right? One thing I'll give Buffett credit for is he knows how to value equities. And so if if the equity markets have risen fivefold relative to the GDP, they're supposed to track it in a crudely one-to-one relationship over a long period of time, then something's out of whack. Now, the other thing that your podcasters might not know, they might, again, I don't know who listens, Throughout the 20th century, there have been these massive peaks, 29, turns out 06, uh, 67, um, 2000. In the previous ones, I I kept telling hedge fund managers who write about this stuff, I kept saying, look, here's the plot I want to see you make. And no one understood what I was talking about, so I finally made it myself. And I don't want to know how many years it took for the markets on an inflation adjusted basis to recover i want to know how many years it took for the markets to hit that same price for the last time yeah not the first time and it turns out on all those big peaks the markets recovered usually it's like 20 20 something years they go up past it and then they come back down and almost without fail they come back to that peak before they start up again. It's an amazing rhythmic pattern if you look at it. And the question is how long does it take from the peak to the point that it got to that same price for the last time? How long that take? And the answer is 40 to 75 years. Wow. So what it means is if you're fully invested all in baby boomer in the year 2020, and if it's one of those major peaks, you're going to be dead and dust when it comes back to that same one.
0: Right. And as we talked about, a lot of people hiding in fixed income, though, that could be a recipe for disaster if we do you know, get rates rising meaningfully. So is this a case where right,
1: if you reach for yield, if you reach for yield? Mm-hmm. Right. So if you're buying 30 year treasuries to get what's the rate on a 30 year treasury now? Tell me, 2.8 or something. Little over two percent. What's the thirty year? Thirty
0: years of two point one three percent on the yield.
1: <laughs> really think of how stupid that is. My favorite question on Twitter. So I ask people, say, okay, imagine someone offers you a guaranteed return, right? You cannot lose your money. You do not know the future. You do not know about inflation. You don't know about other opportunities that might come up. You got to buy this investment and you got to sit on it for 30 years. Because, by the way, when they sell a treasury, someone owns that for 30 years. How much would you demand? And that was what the question was asked in the olden days. When I buy a 30-year treasury, what return do I need to make that a decent idea? That's what you're gonna get for 30 years. I heard a,
0: a great quip talking about how back when rates were 17, 18 percent, nobody wanted to lock in those rates. And um, I you know. was
1: all bonds. I was <laughs> all bonds. Hundred percent bonds back then.
0: Right, and now and now I love people. People can't wait to lock in these, these, these rates for 30 years. And, and like you said, some of it is hoping, okay, they buy it for 2% yield and they're hoping they sell it for
1: 1%. But that's, therefore, they're not locking in the rates. So right. if I ask you, you got to hang on to it for 30 years, what would you demand? People, well, I get it. People saying, well, uh, you don't hang on to it. I go, so what you're saying is you're a bond trader. By the way, most of us aren't. We can't. We don't have it in our DNA. Most uh,
0: retail investors are holding this stuff in ETFs, mutual funds, whether it's Vanguard or Fidelity or, or a TIA plan, as you've talked about, which is, you know, already you have to buy what's there.
1: But the gist is if you had to hang on to that bond for 30 years, the answer I get from people when I say, how much would you demand goes who, goes to some pretty high numbers. People say, I don't know, seven, eight percent. And I go, you know, that would be okay. I could kind of probably live with about that.
0: something to where repo spiked. I think it was between eight and ten percent.
1: <laughs> right. Which means therefore the bond market is no longer pricing correctly. Right. The bond market is pricing like beanie babies. Yeah. The bond market's assuming the bond market is acting like everybody is a bond trader. Everybody. And and I have people argue with me on this point. I go, look, dude, U.S. debt, 30 years, 2 point something percent. That's insane. I know of one guy at a major brokerage who I really trust, who says, here's the deal. I think if you made that deal 30 years from now, that will look like a smart move. This guy obviously is a deflation hawk. He thinks that in 30 years, 3% is going to look like a good return. That's scary. That's scary that's scary yeah and i think uh then if you look
0: at the implications yeah i think i think you if you look at the implications either way there's going to be a lot of problems because you know whether we have whether we have rising rates and then we have this you know equity correction that would probably likely follow um you know bad for for fixed income bad for equity or whether we have this deflation where as you mentioned just Lock of, of any type of GDP, lack of any growth, you know, deflation. So so there's no growth there either to, to bail out these pension funds and these retirees.
1: Well, you know, last year, Argentinian bonds, Argentinian bonds, 100-year Argentinian bonds, which I, I, I'd rather lend a crack horse for 50 years, right? 100-year Argentinian bonds... Because of capital appreciation, made seventy-five percent last year. That's the world we live in. So my thesis is that's not sustainable. It's that simple. Well, Dave, this is this has been great. Why don't
0: you uh, tell people where they can find your work? We're gonna link your your in review in the show notes. Link your Twitter handle and uh, some places people can uh, follow and read more about some of your work.
1: Well, they, um. Twitter. Um, my, my pinned tweet is my year in review and I'm, I'm located at David B column, C O L L U M. And, uh, and, and you pretty much find me there once in a while. My mug shows up in zero hedge cause I do something that's outlandish enough that even zero hedge is willing to publish it. Um, and then, you know, once a year I write this blog, what a way to market yourself once a year. Um, In case you're wondering, um, this year's was 170 pages. So don't think you're going to go find a blog. And it's about anything that I want to write about. This year was tended to be more about social change than finance. Most years, there's quite a bit of finance. This year, I got sick of saying the world's going to end again. Right. Uh, You know, whatever was a mess in 18 is still a mess. I don't need to say it again. Right, And so uh, so I wrote about changes I saw coming, like modern monetary theory and things like that. So um, Gillette ads and how stupid they were, stuff like that.
0: <laughs> right. Well, this, is, uh, this has been great, Dave, and we uh, really appreciate you coming on. It's been fun.
1: My pleasure. Congratulations on boating Einhorn. I can't believe you pulled that off. <laughs> and as I've said to you, I, I begged him to do a couple of interviews and i i he was he was a tough nut to crack and you got him
0: All right, well maybe we'll uh, see him on real vision soon I'd like to see yeah. him on with you maybe you and tony <laughs>
1: <laughs> that would be a mess wouldn't it Einhorn and i are so rhythmically different that it would be an in- insane discussion we, we work on totally different megahertz frequencies
0: all right well uh, we'll see what happens uh, for the rest of the year here you bet thanks dave
1: nice chatting
0: Thanks for joining us today. If you enjoyed the show, we encourage you to tell a friend. You can also support the show for as little as a dollar a month through our Anchor website. Just go to www.jellydonutpodcast.com. If you have feedback, find us on Twitter at jellydonutpod or you can contact us via email at jellydonutpodcast at protonmail.com. As a reminder, all opinions expressed by guests are solely their own and do not reflect the views of their employer or any other affiliated entity. This podcast is for informational purposes only and should not be used as a basis for investment decisions or advice.